Hello and welcome to Time for the Soul. My name is Sharon Kugler and I'm the Yale University Chaplain and today our guest is Elizabeth Conklin. Elizabeth is the Associate Vice President for Institutional Equity, Accessibility and Belonging and the University Title IX Coordinator at Yale and is also a dear friend and colleague even though she's only been at Yale for two years plus some change, came during the COVID pandemic and um, But we did get to meet in person when she interviewed for the job. And as I was thinking about having conversations with people about the idea of sacred calling and our work as vocation, Elizabeth, your name came right into my list in a very easy way. Um, because I, my sense in even first meeting you before really even getting to know you and working closely with you has been that you have looked at your work as a true call, whether that's to to um, speak to issues of justice and belonging and equity, it's all been very clear in anyone who's worked with you or spent any time. And I'm wondering if that comes as a surprise to you to have those words articulated in that way. I'm just so glad you're here. Well, thanks so much, Sharon. I'm thrilled to be here with you and really honored to be asked to be one of your guests. Yeah, when I got your invitation, it definitely caused me to pause and think. And I do think that I have been thoughtful about what I do with my work and how it advances social justice and equity. And that's really been my foundational passion professionally since college. Um, And so I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you about that today. Tell me a little bit about what inspired you to understand your work that way? I um, went to college at the University of Connecticut and um, really quickly found myself attracted to issues of social justice, ultimately doing an independent major in peace studies. And I think there was a way of understanding the world um, that is such a beautiful part of the college experience for so many people that really opened my eyes to issues of global inequities and social justice and seeing even history, particularly of the United States, through that lens and really feeling like there was an eye-opening happening. Um, My higher education experience was also fortified by deep involvement in uh, social justice organizing through student groups. And so the academic focus and the extracurricular focus really worked hand in glove. Um, and I, I became really aware that I wanted to spend my life pursuing equity and justice. Um, I didn't know exactly what that would look like. Um, I was in community organizing for a few years before ultimately looking around and realizing most of the people who were doing work that I found really interesting in the field did have a law degree. So uh, that caused me to pursue a law degree where I sometimes felt like a fish out of water because I had a really fairly clear picture going in of what I wanted to do coming out. Um, And so many of the opportunities in major law firms representing big corporations, I knew from the jump that was not what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you about the law degree, and I want to know more about, you know, how one translates the obvious kind of truth-to-power work and mode that a community organizer really uses as their fuel, 
versus the skills and the artistry that really goes into understanding being a lawyer, but also, I think, in your case, being an advocate as well. Yeah, I think that for me, it's the combining of the two that's so powerful. And the work that we did in social justice and community organizing was so deeply augmented by the legal framework surrounding whatever issues we were fighting. Um, So whether it was fighting corporate subsidies to major corporations that were failing to create living wage jobs, that was one of the campaigns I worked on, Um, or one of my earliest cases in private practice was assisting uh, Food Not Bombs, uh, which which, uh, provides free meals, uh, Food Not Bombs chapter in Wesleyan, to or in Middletown near Wesleyan, to be able to continue to provide food. Getting that case done ultimately involved uh, lobbying the legislature and changing state law. Uh, it was very specific to food service laws. But I learned quickly that there's this idea, I think, sometimes that laws are neutral and they are not. Um, and they are specific to values um, that we hold. And so it became clear to me that it was important to be able to navigate that system to affect real social change. What gives you the, I guess, this sounds dramatic to say the strength to go on, but, you know, we're living in a world that's fraught with, with, you know, I'm recording this after a weekend of more violence in California with mass shootings. And I think about people who are continuing to show up and give of themselves. And where do you draw on from your own life to kind of keep going in this work? You know, I think we are living through a rescission of civil rights. Um, after growing up in an era that felt like an expansion of civil rights, we're, we're, we're living through a rescission of civil rights. And it's also a time of great interpersonal conflict and violence. And I think they're interrelated. Um, And for me, I really believe the work that we do in the higher education setting is pivotal to setting up our future leaders for thinking about how to approach hard issues and also how to approach one another in navigating difficult conversations and addressing and resolving conflict. And so I try to frame my work at Yale and my career as helping to advance social justice and civil rights and to arm leaders to be equipped to manage those issues more successfully. You know, that that's on a good day. Um, you know, I think the other piece for me is I've gotten real clarity through the course of my life that I need to take steps to take care of my wellness. Um, And I think a lot of folks in activism or in social justice work sometimes do the work um, but, but betray their own needs and their own wellness. And so I try very hard to attend to both. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I don't think you ever get one perfect, so now you can focus on the other one. I think it's a simultaneous action, but I try really hard to fill myself up through my own practices around yoga and meditation, time in nature, time with my family, simultaneous with doing this work. Um, And that's how I know um, that I can keep going. When I don't take care of myself in that way, 
I can't show up fully in the work either. I'm so glad that you said that because I do think that is something that we see where people almost uh, use the burnout as a badge of honor. That's right. And it's really, it's not only harmful to them, but it's also not helpful to um, particularly young people who are looking to do this work. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, that that says something about a culture. If the burnout is consistently used as a badge of honor, to me, it's a signal that perhaps someone needs more room and more grace to take care of themselves. I also often think about what it means as a leader to model self-care and what it means as a leader in higher education to model that for our students who are so wonderful and so eager and so very hard on themselves. And so I think part of our obligation to ourselves and our families, but also those that are looking up at us, is to show that you can both attend to your wellness and the wellness of your community and your family and pursue this work, that they they don't have to exist in separate spheres. I'm so glad to hear you say that and put it that way. I want to veer just a little bit back to something that you were alluding to, which is the work that you're doing in higher education. And this is something that we've been spending a lot of time together working on and dreaming about, and that is restorative practices and and using those that skill, and I would argue that art, to create an environment where conflict can be, if not resolved, um, brought into the room in a different way and thought through together in a different way. And I I'm what I I see it as sacred work and as holy work, and I've been grateful to learn more um, with you and and with others as we as we try to bring some rendition of this to Yale. What do you, what do you think about it? I mean, in terms of just older institutions that ha- are kind of set in their ways but want to do better, and I think it's safe to say that that Yale certainly falls into that category. Um, but there's an art, and I've used that now a couple times, to what this practice can look like. Uh, and I just, I'm curious t- for your take on that. Yeah, you know, I think conflict is inevitable and can be healthy and cause things to move forward in a better direction if it's managed appropriately. And I think while it feels like we're living in a heavily conflict-laden society, much of that is keyboard warriors, Mm -hmm. it's through social media, it's quite Mm -hmm. indirect. Mm -hmm. And our students reflect and our staff and our faculty all reflect that when it comes to actually sitting down with someone and having a hard conversation, they don't feel equipped for that moment. They don't feel trained for that moment. And since really my early time in law school, I became very, very interested in how can we think about resolving conflict in ways that feel more healthy. Um, Ultimately, that's one of the things that caused me to leave a litigation practice where you spend years working on a single conflict. And I found myself continually thinking to myself, What may have caused this conflict either not to have occurred in the first place or to resolve in a healthier way? Um, And and that became really clear to me representing dozens and dozens of clients. So I am excited to think about how major universities 
can bring restorative practices such as facilitated dialogue or restorative conferences or circle building practices to their campuses. It's not just about how do we prevent and respond to conflict on campus. I see this as a mission to help educate particularly our students on what does it look like to establish good relationship and be in good relationship and restore and repair relationships when harm inevitably occurs. And that's a skill that is needed everywhere. So I'm excited to work with you and others to hopefully bring that more deeply to our campus. I just, you know, I want to add in closing two things, unrelated but maybe a little bit related. One is that I think that you have brought a true appreciation for the value and weight of relationships. And this pandemic certainly has challenged that. We weren't able to be in person for a significant amount of time. Um, And then when we did come back to be in person, we didn't know what to do with ourselves. And I have admired how you have put a real strong value on that interaction and also a kind of patience that it does take time to cultivate relationships and even more importantly to build trust between people so you can get to the heart of the matter and conflict doesn't feel as scary. Um, So I want to affirm that and I want to just ask you because I think probably the most important hat you wear is mom and when you think about your son, what do you want him to know about the work that you can do that's holy in the world? Mm. That's such a great question. He's six, and so we're just starting to have some of these conversations. But, you know, I think that we have a lot of conversations already about how do we do things that help and support people and cause people to be treated equitably across all sorts of lenses. And also... How do you do work that makes you feel alive and happy? Um, He is obsessed with ferry boats, I think, Mm -hmm. because he's been going to Black Island since Mm -hmm. he was a newborn. His, His eyes light up. And so I hope to see him eventually in a career, maybe it will be as a ferry boat captain, that makes his eyes and his soul light up. Because I think you and I have both found that when you find that niche where you feel alive and in flow, Lean into that. Do more of that. Um, and, and likely you will, you will bring up a lot of people along with you along the way of that, whatever that is. So that's what I hope uh, to, to help him to discover. Elizabeth, that's a beautiful hope, not only for your son, but for all of us. Thank you for joining me today on Time for the Soul. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Time for the Soul is produced by Ryan McAvoy, created by Sharon Kugler, Maytal Satiel, and Sean Mignon. Our music is by J.P. Durvin. This has been a production of the Yale Broadcast Studio. 